There was someone on Twitter that made the comment that they double waved off of like a Zoom call. And they're like, I'm pretty sure there's no coming back from that. And I'm like, oh, that's not cool. I do that for every call. (laughs) I don't see any problem with it. Also, the idea that there are these little like, I don't know, social faux pas that we can do that will ruin our standing, our social cred. If so, then I have lost my social cred years ago. We have a Zoom score that people are keeping track of us, our social etiquette on Zoom, and the double wave is like minus five points. Like I actually got uncomfortable when you said that. (laughs) The idea. Oh, God. So what I'm here for to make people uncomfortable. (laughs) You thought you were muted and you started singing to yourself in the kitchen when you walked out of frame, but then you came back and everyone was laughing at the song that you were singing. You know, all those normal things that humans do. I haven't actually done that one. Oh, man, I got excited. That kind of stuff. You know, I'll just work from our houses, you know? You gotta live and work and all the things. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Chris Toomey. And I'm Steph Carey. And together, we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So, Steph, how you doing? I'm doing really great. I have two fun things that I'm excited about, uh, but I'm going to let you choose which one that I share first. Uh, So one is about a new feature in Trello that I'm jazzed about, and the other one is about pigeon racing. I'm going to go pigeon racing. I'm super excited about the Trello thing, and I'm glad that we're going to get both, but I'm going to lead off with pigeon racing. Thank you for the the option. Yeah, they're both good. The pigeon racing one uh, just came up randomly this week um, as I'm hanging out with my parents, and my mom has one of those neighborhood apps where you can sort of share stuff with your neighbors if you have something that's for sale or you want to give away. And someone posted on this neighborhood app that they own about 100 racing pigeons and that they have been stolen and they wanted to know notify the neighborhood that their pigeons were now gone and were then just looking for like information. Like if anyone had any leads for them, if they'd seen any pigeons. And I just got very intrigued and then started diving into the world of pigeon racing because I didn't know this this was a thing. I'd never heard of pigeon racing. Have you? Is this like homing pigeons where you let them go and like how quickly they get back? That's exactly it. Not like put a bunch of pigeons in a drag race and see which one can fly fastest, to, which I like that imagery as well, but... So I definitely had the second version uh, imagined in my head when I'm thinking pigeon racing. I'm thinking like horse racing. I'm like, that sounds chaotic. Uh, But yes, it's definitely the other version that you described where they're homing pigeons. And I just didn't realize like how much of a history there is behind this and that races are typically like 75 to 500 miles. And you can choose which distance you're racing. And then they place a timer. The different techniques that they've used for timing pigeons over history has improved. And that's pretty interesting to understand and how they're tracking like when the pigeons let go and then immediately when the pigeon like reaches their coop because it used to be more of a manual process and you had to be there to then notify whoever's judging the race that your pigeon had returned. But now they put something on the pigeon's leg where now it tracks it so that as soon as the RFID chip crosses the line into like their coop, then that immediately reports their time so they can track it that way. Apparently these pigeons can sell for like up to the most expensive one sold for $1.4 million dollars for a pigeon and there's like over it's a show pigeon not a race pigeon anymore that's you're not racing yeah. that pigeon you're not just <laughs> letting it fly for 1.4 million no that is that is a breeding pigeon and there's like over 800 uh breeds of pigeons so yeah i'm all up on the world of uh pigeon racing now sure obviously that's the only reasonable response when you hear the news although i thought you were going to go more on like a true crime podcast drama 
like I'm really I gotta find these pigeons. I started I started researching and now I just I need to find them. But you went more of the I just want to know more about pigeon racing, which again, reasonable take. So I do have a small theory along the true crime aspect. And if I find out more, I'll bring it back. Someone had commented in the neighborhood app like a day or two later that they were in a park that's nearby and they mentioned that they saw a pigeon that has one of those, I don't know what to call it, like little patches or bracelets around its ankle, which indicates that uh, the pigeon belongs to somebody and they saw a couple of them. So I'm starting to wonder if someone didn't actually steal the pigeons because how are you going to do that? How are you going to pull up to somebody's house, load up a hundred pigeons and then take off with them? Like that sounds complicated. Like... Yeah, that's a whole movie in itself. That's what makes this a heist. That is quite <laughs> what a heist. makes this a real deal. <laughs> but I'm wondering if instead someone just released the pigeons, either because they didn't like that the pigeons were being used for racing, or maybe they're just trying to be devious and prevent them from participating in an upcoming race. So I have theories. I'll let you know if they half pan snarky, out. Half snarky, half serious question. Wouldn't the pigeons just fly home at that point? Isn't that their feature? True. I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so the lack of the pigeons returning, I think, implies nefarious mm. intent. Yeah, but maybe then just a couple got away because, you know, hundreds a lot to control. So a couple of them flew out of the truck or. Yeah, that's 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 a good point. Good detective work. Thank you. We'll start solving pigeon crimes. <laughs> Hard pivoting to pigeon and or other true crime drama. But we're done with this tech stuff. All right. And then are you ready for the uh, the Trello update? Yes, please. <laughs> Moving back into our normal uh, line of work before we start collecting payment for solving true crime mysteries. The Trello feature that I'm excited about is they've released a way to switch easily between your different Trello accounts. So instead of having to sign out of your account and then sign back into another one and having to do that multiple times throughout the day, which I do is I'm jumping back and forth between my client Trello board and ThoughtBot Trello board. I also have a personal Trello board that I use. You can now sign into all of your Trello accounts and you can just toggle from one account to the other. Interesting. I hadn't actually realized that Trello had like that people would have different accounts. I thought of it more like GitHub where I have one account and then I have my own personal boards, but then I'm also joined to a team and that team lets me, you know, see boards in their organization. Although recently they switched it over and it's Atlassian IDs now because Atlassian purchased it and that was a whole hoop jump thing. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know what's going on, but that's good at least that if there is this reality in the world that they have this nice uh, switching thing. So I do have three different emails that I'm using for all these accounts. So I do have an email with my current client and then I have my thought by email and I have my personal email. So perhaps that's why it's different. So I can't see all my boards since they're associated with different accounts. And then this will make my life easier. Although it's not available for enterprise accounts, I discovered there's some additional security concerns. So they're slowly rolling this feature out to folks that have an enterprise account, which seems to be the type of account that I have with my client. So I don't have the full feature glory yet, but one day I'm, I'm excited it's in the works. Yep. Now that you mentioned it, that actually is probably the reason that you would have this is for like if you're with an organization that uses single sign-on and all that kind of stuff, and it's an email address that they control, this totally makes sense. Then you'd have to switch back and forth. And in that case, I would definitely want this. At this point, everybody just puts me on random Trello boards, and I appreciate that. I don't want more email addresses. That's not a thing I want in this world. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, but those are my two adventures. I realize I've been hogging up <laughs> this whole time. How are you doing? How are things in your world? No, this is great. We let off with some strong contenders. We had homing pigeons and a Trello update. I'm doing well. I have a, actually a fun one that I learned about yesterday that uh, I've wanted this forever and didn't even think about like looking for it. I don't know how long this has existed, but there's a feature in Git called the ignore revs file, 
which allows you to specify revisions or like hashes to ignore when you're looking at git blame or other things like that. So recently I've added Prettier to a bunch of projects specifically for Ruby. So these are existing code bases. I add Prettier in and then I do the one reformat the world change. And then every single line in the app is now blamed to me. But with this, you can just say ignore that commit and any other commits that have that same sort of automated nature. You can just add a bunch of commit hashes to this file and then they will be ignored. You do have to opt into it locally as far as I can tell. And GitHub does not honor it yet, but I would love for them to. And it's pretty easy to opt into it. You just say, like, this is the config file. But, yeah, it's awesome. I'm super happy about it. That's really cool. So if I'm looking at a file, let's say it has two commits, and then it has a third commit that's your reformat the world. We add that commit SHA that then reformats the world. If I look at the git history or, like, a git blame for that file, I won't see that commit where you reformatted. Exactly. And if anything, you'll see the relevant line prior to the reformatting commit that was, like, Imagine that you hopped over that and we're like, oh, okay, I don't care about that. What was the commit before that that affected this line? You now see that. So it just basically like wipes it from history and it's great. I like that term you just use, like hopping over that commit and recognizing that it's not really that helpful to see it. That's a really cool feature. I, I think I saw you share a tweet about that and I've been meaning to look into it, but that sounds awesome. Yeah, I added it and it just works. I've noticed one of the areas that I find really tedious is when I'm looking at the gem file and I want to see like who added a particular gem to maybe follow up with them about why it was added and ask some questions about it. And then it's going through the, all the different gem updates. It's like update version, update version. And I end up having to use that GitHub history feature where I'm ignoring that particular commit and saying, take me back further in time more and more and more. So yeah, I can relate to that pain of where you're like hopping over all these commits that you really don't care about to get to the one that you are interested in with a meaningful change. It's interesting. GitHub displays commits now and it will uh, de-emphasize those commits in the list. So they're still there and you can still see them, but they like change the opacity to like 0.5 and I think they shrink them down as well. And so GitHub has the idea of these are commits that are less important or authored by bots or things like that. I would love to see that same sort of thing introduced into Git just locally so that I could say like anything that was authored by Dependabot, de-emphasize those or hide them or otherwise let me skip them with a certain command. I wonder if there's actually just like a Git filter prefix sort of thing. Git has a lot of stuff. I was just thinking there's more than likely a way that we could craft that command, but you'd have to look through all the commits and then check the author name or... I mean, if it's for like Dependabot, then you could check the author name. If it's for reformatting, that one would get a lot harder. I'm not sure then how you would know the commits that are less interesting. But the Dependabot ones, I bet you could filter out. Yeah, the Dependabot has the author name. And then with this file, the git ignore revs file, now you've actually enumerated the other ones that were authored by a person but are nonsense or like just formatting. And I know that git has a for each ref command so now i have successfully nerd sniped myself and we'll probably this is a fun little project i'll take on at some point i'll look forward to your tweet over the weekend <laughs> when you figured this out and share it with the world i couldn't sleep i made a thing no i didn't i'm, I'm probably gonna sleep that's that's my hope for me in the future that i can just ignore this and be like it'll be fine i'm actually not using dependabot on any projects right now so it's not a pressing concern Speaking of Dependabot, uh, something that we've talked about in the past, I was talking about struggling where we've added Dependabot to a project and we have a bunch of PRs that are coming out each day and we've even ramped it down. So there's only so many that Dependabot will check for each day or per week. But with all the NPM packages and Ruby gems, there's just still enough noise to keep up with and then figuring out how do we fit that into our process? Because back then it was mostly people picking them up in their spare time, but we're all very focused on our sprint work as well. So it's hard to 
have that extra time to then just push along one of these PRs. So I don't think I've circled back and shared our our ending process with you or what we've done to resolve that, but we are bringing Dependabot PRs into our sprint planning now. So the person that's head of engineering is to start us off is taking all the existing open Dependabot PRs and then turning them into Trello tickets and then dropping like one or two tickets into each team sprint at the beginning of planning. We were adding them during sprint, but we're going to move that back to pre-sprint so that way we get to plan for them and pull them in appropriately with other work. But that's been a really nice change. And it was really helpful just to go ahead and have that conversation with the team to say, we have something that we have all acknowledged as important, but yet we haven't budgeted time for it. So this is how we're going to fit it into our process. That totally makes sense. And that feels like very much the right step in the process to like, like you said, recognize that this work is here, we're not naming it normally, and we're not including it in any sort of planning. But now that we do, I wouldn't be surprised if the next thing that happens is everyone being like, man, there's a lot of those cards in the board. And that's taking up a bunch of our time. We might want to invest some time in automation or enhancing the test suite or automating deploys or whatever it is that helps obviate some of that work. But um, yeah, this totally makes sense as the first step in that process. Yeah, I agree. It's been really helpful. So look at us closing loops. I'm so proud. This is a bunch of loops. You've been getting uh, much better at this loop closing thing. Uh, I can only imagine how many unclosed loops I've left behind in previous episodes, (laughs) but uh, here we are. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up to see a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building great products by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. Give Scout a try for free today, and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com slash bikeshed, all one word, and Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Thanks again to Scout for sponsoring this episode of The Bike Shed. Actually, on the topic of open loops from previous episodes, I think in the most recent episode, I talked a little bit about some of the performance work that I've been doing on one of the applications that I'm working on. And there's been more of it. It's been more of an adventure, but it's been going well. I'd say like 75% of the things I try work and improve performance. And that is exciting. 25% of them do not. uh, But that happens. And at least I'm measuring and testing and finding out what works and what doesn't. But yeah, I think just to talk through a couple of the things that I've done. So I talked about the follower database, which that seems to have been beneficial. It's hard to actually quantify that one because it didn't like change any specific query. It just took some sporadic but high cost load off the system because there were people doing like analytics queries and things like that that would hit the database for like 10 minutes to get all the data they needed. So that seems good. Uh, That's stable. Everybody's happy. I did do, I'm going to call it a mediocre job of communicating the change. So there were a handful of people that had read access to the production database and we introduced the replica. I rotated their credentials and then I reached out to all of them with their new credentials saying, hey, here's your new thing. And I figured that would be enough because presumably whenever they need to access, they use their credentials and they connect. But what I didn't think about was there were folks who had data clips 
defined on Heroku that were then, uh, there's a CSV option for that that you can import into Google Sheets. So there was basically a whole automated workflow that they had built up with a bunch of Google Sheets and going through and changing all of those, especially in time for a particular meeting where they needed the data that was in it, I had sort of broken their day. So I felt bad about that. You know, a reminder to always be purposeful and communicate these things beforehand. Oh, yeah, that's a that's a great point. I wouldn't have thought about that, how having data snippets and that would sort of like break their world until they updated all of it. I, I have a question when you're talking about setting up the replica database. That's something that I haven't done. And I'm just curious, like, what are the mechanics behind that? Is that like literally just clicking a couple of buttons on whoever is providing like your service to like spin up another server? And but then how do you point it to the production database? I'm curious of the steps that you took to set up that replica. I'm trying to remember. I know it was very easy. Uh, so we're using Heroku and Heroku Postgres being part of that. They, I think there was just a command line option to say, make this a follower of the primary. And then from there, there's some very, I think it like builds from a backup and it then catches up on the, the right ahead log. And then it's just following from there. And it's magic. It just seems to keep up. I have an idea of how it works, but the fact that it works as well as it does, a bunch of people who I was, I was switching their credentials over and multiple people asked me like, oh, so like how often will this sync throughout the day? Because that was their assumption is this is going to be a granular three times a day. We pull a backup from primary and put it onto the secondary. I was like, no, I think it'll pretty much be in real time, uh, which is just magic. Postgres is a wonderful piece of technology. Awesome. Yeah, I was just curious since I haven't been through that those steps, but that sounds super easy. Indeed it was. But yeah, other things, uh, there was a bunch of finding queries that looked like they were performing poorly. And then diving into a Postgres console and using explain on the given query. So explain select blah, and then seeing what the cost is. And I got slowly better at reading those explain outputs because they are somewhat terse, but it's basically a cost number. So I was just looking, is the cost high? And also is the cost variable? Like, are we seeing cases where it's trying to use an index, but it can't, or it's just not using an index at all? And in particular, there are a couple of standout tables that are by far our largest. And so those are the ones that I wanted to make sure. So I added a bunch of indices, used the magic of concurrently uh, so that I could not block things. And luckily, I was able to sneak in just under the wire and get those in. So there's an hour limit on migration or other deployment-related things on Heroku. So I was under the wire on that, and I didn't have to do the more complicated thing that you and I have talked about in the past of make a rake task, do the concurrent out of the transaction, and however long it takes, and then deal with whatever happens there. But um, yeah, luckily, I was able to sneak those in, and they make a world of difference. And indexes in a database are also somewhat magical. As you were debugging and running um, the different queries and using explain, were you running them just locally and then sending that off to production with the confidence that it improved? Or were you rerunning those on production? Because in my past experience, they can be pretty different depending on your dev and production environment. So I'm just curious if you were testing on both or just trusting your local environment. Yeah, good question. Uh, I was testing on staging. So staging is a less powerful database, but it has a full backup of production or I was manually taking it back up, restoring it to staging, and then I was working on staging. And I got to the point where like, I was testing things, I would make a pull request, and then I would deploy that to staging, see the change happen. But that was a slow enough workflow that I got to the point where I was just manually running the index command. So I would open up a psql prompt via Heroku and connect to the staging database with that, run the command to add the index, rerun the query, check the cost again, and then drop it so that I was back in the normal place. And that's a little bit questionable. Like I definitely wouldn't do that against production, but I kept things reasonable. I always like worst case, the database gets out of sync and a migration fails. The next time I deploy to staging, 
and then I can just recopy production over. So I wasn't too worried about that mixing up, but I did want to make sure I was on a more production-like instance and staging was representative of that. Cool. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I forgot about having staging. That would be a perfect example of where you'd have a more production-like environment, but not having to go all the way and test it in local and production. Cool. Yeah. There was one actually very interesting one. So there are a bunch of cases where I saw a query. It looked iffy. I saw that there was a particular field that we were filtering on or something like that. Did a quick check. We did not have an index. So I added an index, checked the cost. Everything worked. It was great. There were some cases where we had composite indexes. So... I had to try and restructure them because it's the biggest table that we have is one of the more problematic ones, unsurprisingly, and we have a bunch of indexes on it. And so I ended up adding one, but then eventually taking away, there was like a singular index, but then there was also a composite index on the user ID as well as another field. So I added that composite one and that can serve as the index for the user ID. So I wanted to eventually drop the user ID one, but I had to like deploy the one, wait for that to settle concurrently add the index all that fun stuff and then go and drop the other one but overall those all kind of worked as expected Uh, but there was one case where we had a query that was sufficiently complicated there's an index on a start date column so there's basically events in this table and the events have a start date and an end date and we want to filter based on a bunch of things but we were trying at one point to do a query that was looking at the start date but it was doing a bunch of finicky math around time zones so we basically wanted to answer the question find me all of the events where for the user it was within this week. And so for the user implies, oh, well, I have to time zone shift into their time zone and then ask was the start date after this date, but the end date was before that date. So there's a bunch of math that apparently Postgres was like, I'm sorry, that's too complicated. I cannot apply the index to that, which makes sense because the index is based on the UTC time. And so I was scratching my head and I'm thinking like, all right, so I could I could try casting them. I could have a secondary index that, and then someone made the very smart suggestion of, well, what if you just like also added a where clause that was start date is two weeks ago? That will definitely cut off and like get us down to a reasonable set that we can then do more advanced filtering. And I wasn't sure how it would play, whether or not Postgres would actually use the index for the initial and then do the sub filtering within that. But Postgres is very smart. It did the thing. It was a magic, super easy fix that I was so excited to find. Nice. I was trying to race ahead of you and think about what that resolution may be. And that was a great suggestion that I didn't think of. Nice. I was sort of exasperated at the end of the day. And I hopped on a call with someone and I was like, I'm just I want to talk out loud about this. And they were like, well, what if you just like, I don't know, pick two weeks before. And I was like, that is genius. Tried it. It immediately worked. I was like, cool. So this is not my idea. I can take no credit for it. But um, yeah, some other fun things that I've done in there. But we'll pause there and and switch over. Uh, What else you got going on in your world? Speaking of all this Postgres fun, all the adventures that you've been on, I've also run into one that is a little similar, not so much in terms of performance, but in terms of what kind of data that we're storing. And I've run it into that dreaded three-state Boolean where we have a column on a table and it can be null. Uh, so it's either true, false, or null. And most of the time that's fine. But then we've also run into bugs where trying to send that null value to another system that expects that value to always be a Boolean is then throwing up an error. So the first solution to that is to go ahead and just coerce the null into a Boolean. So that way, when we're sending it over, we're making sure that we're sending the data that the other system requires. 
But it made me think, well, what if we went ahead and fixed this three-state Boolean and made it the proper two-state? And I started thinking through all the different steps. And so I checked for like how many records we have, how many records that have this particular column where it's set to null. That one's not so bad. But we'd introduce a rake task where we could backfill that data. I know you could also include that in the migration. I'm just a purist in terms where it comes to changing data in a rake task instead of doing that in a migration as well. And then once that has been populated, uh, then we could add a default value for that column, which is a safe operation. It won't lock the table. It's going to apply to new records that are being created. And then to go back and add the not null constraint for that particular column, which is not a safe operation, as it does require that exclusive lock on the table while it's doing the full scan and verifies that it can go ahead and check that no null values exist. But then to add that constraint safely, there's different approaches you have to take. And strong migrations, I think that's a gem I've used. I think you've used it as well. They have a really nice recommendation on how to go about it. But it just made me revisit, oh my goodness, like all the different like tedious steps that you have to go through to then like fix this data. So then you're only working with like a true Boolean state. And we ended up not going that route at this time because there's enough steps to go along with it. But it reinforced the idea that anytime I'm adding a Boolean column to always make sure that there is a not null constraint set on that column or that table for that column. Yeah, strong, strong agree on having that as like a hard and fast rule. I would go further to say if there were ever someone like pushing back and saying, oh, no, 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 but there is actually a valid case for null in this like Boolean field, I would say actually what you have there is an enum that you want to like, let's name. What What is that? Is it unchosen? Is it, let's give them names, name all the things. Null's bad. Exactly. Yeah, I'm with you. Because then if you have that null, you don't actually know what that represents. Does it mean that this record was just unassessed? Like we didn't actually check if this is true or false. And so we just left it in this default like null state. Or did we do something with that record and then null represents something else where it fell outside of the true or false and that's just an unknown? So I agree with you. If you get to the point where there's value in that three-state Boolean, then you probably have an enum. What would you say you do here, null? (laughs) Now we're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor. One of the greatest challenges we all face is taking in all the information that's available and knowing where to focus. It's the same problem with hiring. With Indeed, you have access to the largest pool of talent and can hire the right people fast. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need, you can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job posts, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com forward slash bike shed. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com forward slash bike shed. Terms and conditions do apply. Offer valid through September 30th. Thank you again to Indeed for sponsoring today's episode. Yeah, I do love spending the time to actually like get the model right in the database. 
more and more over time too. The more time I spend with the database, the more I like it, the more I want to encode some truth in it. Especially there's the active record PG enum. I forget what, exactly which one I use, but I've been using that more and more on projects lately. And I love that I can now map that completely into the Rails layer from Postgres and all those niceties. But yeah, so I've listed a couple of wins that I had in the performance adventure. Uh, now let's talk about one of the not wins. Uh, so we have a bunch of stuff that we've been doing at the database layer, but we also have a caching layer. Uh, so we use memcache. And ideally, we have a bunch of shared data within the system. It's more like the content. And then users can have records of interacting with the content. Did you watch this? Did you take this test? Whatever it is, those sort of things. But all of the content stuff should be very cacheable because it's not changing that often. It's very much a shared resource that all the users sort of uniformly have access to. And so we've added caching to a bunch of them. But there was one thing that is a bit squirrelier is how I would describe it. There's more intermingling between user data and the content data. And so I was trying to add caching, but I wasn't fully aware of exactly what I was working with. And I suddenly took a look at the cache and the cache was 98% full. And I'm like, wait, what? I forget how much we had. I think we had a hundred megabyte cache and we were idling at like 10 megabytes normally because there were expiries and that's just how it was turning over and then suddenly it was like 98 megabytes and i was like uh oh so i bumped it up because it's very cheap to do that and we got a couple of statistics and other features out of uh this is mem cashier that we're using as the add-on on heroku and so i started looking at it and it turned out one of the caches that i had added was just thrashing about i also had forgotten to add any expiry so it was just basically perpetually filling this content record had essentially a counter in it so how many users have watched was now associated with that top level record and thus it was constantly being updated and thus the cache was completely useless <laughs> but at least we had an extra round trip to memcache you know which is super cheap but still it was basically that the cache was completely filling up and then when it filled up the nature of like which keys it would evict and things like that that the app actually had a brief period of not so happy times because it was throwing out what we wanted to be caching and prioritizing the, the more recent writes, were, which was this very volatile thing. So that was one of those, like, uh-oh, got to swap. Uh, here's a quick PR. Uh, <laughs> the team that I was working with actually has been taking Fridays off. But I came in on Friday, and I was like, nobody mind me. I'm just going to quickly deploy a couple PRs. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. To memcache <laughs> changes good. on a Friday, no less. <laughs> That's not terrifying. It's fine. <laughs> Uh, but the like the higher level idea there in my mind is design for cacheability in a system like this where we can embrace caching caching is always going to be faster and where we can do it in a way that we trust and understand and there's not a lot of complexity there like designing your system with highly volatile data separate from more stable data that feels like a useful thing separating user specific data from more general data those sort of things but there's one place in the app was a real um knotted up mess of all of that and uh, i i ran into that i'm really intrigued by that idea i also want to add that mem cashier is a very cute name i just that called my attention i had to share that Double thumbs up for Mim Cash here. Um, I'm very intrigued by that idea because I don't I don't do that right now where I'm thinking through the architecture of my data. I don't think about the data that's going to be changing more often than the data that's not. So I'm curious if you have some more thoughts or examples to walk through as to like when you intentionally like create two different tables because you think one table is going to be written to more often. What are some more thoughts in that area? So maybe I can take those and apply them to my next project. Well, these are new thoughts in my mind. Um, I've not worked on systems that would have benefited from this much caching before uh, the volume of requests and the regularity of the requests in this app is particularly well suited to caching as a solution 
And so now that I've seen some of the failure modes, I'm starting to sort of back into like, oh, okay, if we had designed the system in this way, though, it would be way better. And so again, it's sort of those ideas of keep the volatile data separate from the stable data, keep the user data separate from the content or whatever it is that's you know going to be more stable. And in particular, the way this maps out is we have these serializers that in a bunch of them, they have sort of nested behavior. So a category contains many topics, contains many videos, and the serializer will actually send down all of that because we have, it's sort of like building our own GraphQL within the system. But in some cases, we sort of traverse up and down the hierarchy. So that's actually one that's been really interesting is Rails has the idea of touch true on relationships. And so we can use cache busting based on the updated at timestamp. And we can rely on the fact that nested resources will bust the updated at timestamp of their parent if you properly define those relationships. But if you're going like up and down the tree, then it's not going to work. So you need to have a very sort of clear directed graph in order to be able to do that. So like a category has many topics, has many videos. A video, when it changes, should bust its parent category, should bust the parent topic sort of thing. And if you have that designed correctly, then it's all going to work fantastically. And Rails has these built-in helpers that do wonderful things with that. But if you forget to include the touch true, or if you have cyclic relationships or up and down sort of traversal, then you're you're going to have a bad time. When you talk about designing it correctly, are you speaking directly to like making sure that the foreign key associations are there so Rails knows that the relationship to then bust that cache? I'm not actually sure what you mean when you say design it correctly. I think it would be more about data access than anything. So the, yeah, ideally you do have the foreign keys structured in such a way that there's this very directed relationship. So this is a parent of that is a parent of that, but you don't also have a reference to the like grandparent. The arrows really got to go in one direction for this to work. And if they do, you're going to have a great time. But if they don't, you're going to have a bad time. Uh, you are sort of putting me on the spot, though, where these are these are new thoughts that I have. Uh, they're similar to we have a bunch of stuff going on with the job system right now. And so designing for item potency and throttling and things like that within the job system. It's one of those things that I definitely didn't do early on. And I'm only recently now that I'm spending more time in it being like, oh, it would be great if all the jobs could like be chill. And here's what I mean by chill. <laughs> but I'm still these are very <laughs> much ideas that I'm forming. No, I love it. I think that's great. Uh, item potent, aka chill. Uh, I like it. Aka chill, yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I understand if they're they're new thoughts. I don't totally mean to put you on the spot, but I am very intrigued by that idea, and then just carrying it forward and seeing how I'm applying that to the projects that I'm working on. So, if you have more thoughts, we should come back and uh, discuss them. Yeah, I would absolutely love to, and I appreciate the questions. It's one of those. I do spend a lot of time, like recently I spent a bunch of time on caching, and I feel like I got to this deep level of understanding and sort of wrote up a, a very long Git commit, but I feel like I should do something more with that so that I can keep that information. A blog post is the correct answer to this question, obviously, but I'm terrified of writing a blog post because I want it to be perfect when I write a blog post. So uh, this is just the runaround that happens in my head. I have a friend, I don't know if I've shared this with you before, but I have a friend that has um, a blog that they run and they've done something that I really liked about it where they open sourced it. And so every time they publish an article, then folks that are reading through that article, if they find an issue or if they find a typo, they can submit a pull request and then update the article. And I thought that was really cool because I feel like that helps a bit with taking off that perfection pressure because then other people can directly contribute to it and help with updating it. And I also really like that interaction where this blog post is in sort of community driven 
who would be neat you could also add them as like authors to the pr or like additions um or not to the pr but to the blog post add them as like additional authors yeah so that's just something that crossed my mind i think that would be a neat way to run a blog I definitely like that idea. I've actually the handful of blog posts that I have written, I've almost always gotten feedback. But thankfully, in that way that I'm lucky on the internet, it's been very positive and sort of constructive of like, oh, you could try this or there's a command that wraps all of that up. And then I'll update the blog post. So the idea that I need to get it right up front, that's a lie that I'm telling myself. Uh, I am definitely averse to having it be open source just because I want the like freedom to be drafting and editing in my own private space. But the idea of welcoming changes or having like a let me know if anything's wrong with this and that opens up like a contact form or something like that uh, all of that makes sense there's also the idea of the digital garden which i've seen a lot of people talking about i want to say joel hooks is one of the people that i've seen talking about this on the internet uh, but it's rather than thinking of a blog as this very chronological authoritative thing the digital garden is like i'm writing about some ideas i'm going to reorder them restructure them reorganize them i'm going to edit them and improve them over time but this is just kind of my space on the internet that i will tend like a garden over time and i really love that idea i'm just i'm still uh, battling the voices in my head i also love that phrasing of garden i think ever since i think it was you that introduced me to that concept in terms of like the digital garden and i've been using that going forward and thinking about when i'm working on code bases, like it's really like gardening, maybe you're planting something new, maybe you're pulling out some weeds. And then for bike shed, I have an hour that's booked off usually every Friday where I'm working on bike shed related stuff. And that's called bike shed gardening. Uh, <laughs> I've really embraced this idea of being a digital gardener. It's a wonderful idea. So one other thing uh, that I've been working on is on my client project, someone has proposed the replacement of string.freeze and replacing that with the magic comment, the frozen string literal true magic comment that goes at the top of each file that was introduced back in Ruby 2.3. But we're just now looking at adding that to all of our projects that we have now. And right now it's a one-to-one -one replacement. But from what I've read about using that magic comment, there's typically performance boosts that come from adding it to the top of every single file, just because it's easy to miss opportunities where you could freeze a string, but you didn't really think about it. And by missing out on those opportunities, then you're also missing out on some performance boost that may come from that and essentially defaulting to the mode that strings are immutable instead of having this sort of like one off like, well, this string's immutable and this string's immutable, like the Oprah of like giving out Im immutable strings. <laughs> you can instead switch to the default mode that all strings are immutable. And then for folks that are feeling like a rebel and really do want a mutable string, even if they're in a file that has that comment, then they can use the string.new constructor and that will return a mutable string. So we're working on that. We haven't added it to the top of every single file and I'm eager to see if it just works. If there's any compatibility concerns that come from this, I know that Matt's aspired to make strings immutable by default in Ruby 2.3, but has since abandoned that idea due to compatibility concerns. So yeah, have you worked much with the magic comment or how are you freezing your strings these days? I glare at the comment every time I see it in a file. That's part of how I... <laughs> Uh, do you know, is there an option for enabling this globally? Like, I hate the idea that I have to write a magic comment at the top of every single one of my files for, if we're being honest, a mode of operation that I've already been doing. Whenever I see string mutation and like string plus equals blah, I'm like, no, 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 we're not doing that. We're not going to, we're going to, let's unwind that and let's talk about other options here. There's always another option. <laughs> 
Uh, I think there is. Uh, when Ruby 2.3 came out with this feature, I feel like there's a flag that you could set where it was the default, but I don't know how that default was getting applied. It looked like it was just setting it for an environment variable. So then it's set for all files. So that might be a nice way to do it, but then it's not set in every file. That could be some fun surprises for folks if that was like a change that they weren't aware of to look at the environment variable to realize like why they can't mutate a string. We have taken away your privileges. (laughs) Your access to string mutation has been revoked. But yeah, I do think there is a flag, but I haven't tried it out. But I agree with you. That would be tedious to have to remember to add that comment to every single new file and go through an existing project and add that file. I've seen a gem or two that will do this for you for, I think, that same reason, because it's a tedious process to have to go through. And RuboCop will also have that warning that if you start mutating a string, then it will suggest that you add that comment. And then if you do that commit that adds it to all of the files, then you can add the commit hash of that commit to the git ignore this rev because it's just adding noise to the top of the files. And nobody has to care. (laughs) Nobody has to care. Well, git still has to keep some track. Thank you, git. Git will hide it for us so we don't have to care. (laughs) One other oddity that I've discovered um, in the category of what I would classify as like useless Ruby knowledge is that I discovered there's the dash unary operator that will also return a frozen string. So if you did like parens dash a string and I don't know, mango dot frozen, that will, well, you don't have to call the dot frozen. If you wanted to see that it's dot frozen, uh, huh, as you like to say, or question mark, <laughs> then that will return true. So yeah, there's a dash unary operator that will return a frozen string today on useless Ruby. Well, on that note, uh, <laughs> I think that's a perfect note to wrap up on. That sounds great. Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or reach me at svicari on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to the Bike Shed and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.